from my honeypot research, I've found that any new computer that connects to the internet, having never run any kind of service before, you're discovered within an hour. Usually about 30 minutes, people start to connect to you with that tool that we call ping. If you're a, a high value target, like the honeypots that I've put up for infrastructure, within a day or two, we start getting connection attempts, real scans, trying to log into the system, people trying to log in every, every few minutes with different passwords and just to see what happens. Meet Michael Haney, an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Idaho. Computer hackers are always developing new tricks and businesses hire professional cybersecurity experts to protect their important data. But there are not enough experts to go around. Idaho has now gone all in to educate the next wave of cybersecurity experts, and Michael is leading the charge. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at the University of Idaho. Throughout the third season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we're going to talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Michael and I talked about the need for more cybersecurity experts and what Idaho and U of I are doing to fill the void. Michael, thank you so much for calling in today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, you are a cybersecurity expert. Can you introduce yourself real quick to our audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Michael Haney. I'm an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Idaho. I am in the Idaho Falls campus, uh, and I have a joint appointment with the Idaho National Lab as a cybersecurity researcher. So you spend much of your time actually training some of the people that work there, correct? I do. Most of my students are um, INL employees and are already in some engineering position. I, I have a few traditional students, but most of my students are non-traditional graduate students. Now, cybersecurity is something that seems to come up more and more in the news. Why is this something that we are suddenly talking a whole bunch about? Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. I've been doing cybersecurity or something around computer and information assurance for over 20 years. And it used to be that it primarily affected tech companies or financial service companies. And now it seems to be affecting everyone everywhere. It's a consequence of the fact that just about everything in modern society runs on computers, uh, whether we're aware of it or not. There are systems in what we refer to as cyberspace, which are physical real-world systems. So what we have now is a proliferation of cyber-physical systems that control all kinds of things that you wouldn't think about. Anyone who's bought a car in the last five years is basically buying a computer that has four wheels and runs down the road. They are electronic and digitally controlled and connected constantly back to their vendors or to a, uh, a dealership. And in the future, they'll be connected directly to the infrastructure and exchange information. So we have traditional computers with monitors and keyboards and mouse, and we do our banking and we play our video games. And now we connect to our classes and do our homework and everything else. But then we have these non-traditional things that have computers in them. And we, we call that the internet of things. And these things might be, you know, toasters and ovens and light bulbs that we have in our homes, but they're also really large scale infrastructure systems like hydroelectric dams and nuclear power plants and 
smaller infrastructure systems like traffic lights that can be, with air quotes, smart because they are doing calculations and exchanging information. And these are all kinds of critical and interconnected cyber-physical systems. And there's a bunch of wily hackers out there who've figured out that they can mess around with these things. And some of them do it just for fun, and some of them do it for research, and some of them do it for uh, really nefarious reasons. It's been driven a lot by people trying to steal money. Um, but we're getting to a point where it's really becoming critical at sort of a national security uh, warfare level. And that's where a lot of my, my research now goes in that direction. Trying to shut down infrastructure can be a scary thing. So we're trying to keep it safe. And I mean, I know we hear about, you know, these big hits, you know, Target get, you know, hit, I believe it was Christmas a number of years ago, but that's not necessarily the whole story. We sometimes maybe think in Idaho that we're a little, you know, removed from some of the bigger problems, you know, hackers are going to go after Wall Street or Silicon Valley or something like that. But no, they're actually also going after small businesses and some of the, you know, government agencies even in Idaho, correct? Absolutely. Uh, and, that's, and so that's kind of been the the evolution of the hackers and what they target and what they're able to get into. It, it has been traditionally Wall Street and Silicon Valley because that's where the data is and that's where the money is. But what we're seeing now is a proliferation of something called ransomware, which is uh, software that can get onto a system and disrupt your access to information. It, it usually does it through encryption. And so it encrypts everything on your hard drive and then it holds that data ransom. And it says you must pay or you'll never see your data again. The, the bad guys who are doing this kind of thing have found that the, it's particularly effective if you hit hospitals, municipalities, different government agencies or infrastructure operators because they are uh, unfortunately in a position where they really have to pay to get access to that data or uh, people's lives are affected, potentially health and safety or even uh, you know whether or not people live or die depends on whether or not these computers are up and running and keeping things going. I can easily see that for like a hospital. It's gotten unfortunately pretty bad. And there's a lot of actors out there doing it. Some of them are sort of individual hacker groups and, and some of them are, are countries. So Idaho has decided to kind of go all in on helping create the next wave of cybersecurity experts. Why did we decide that this was a horse we were going to back? And, and what, what's the plan? Right. Uh, well, A, because it's so important for the nation, uh, but I think B, importantly, Idaho as a state, the University of Idaho in particular, along with Idaho State University, have been doing computer security, information assurance, uh, cybersecurity for a long time. The, the programs uh, at the University of Idaho and Idaho State University both date back to the late 90s when we started educating people formally in the subject of computer security. And those programs have, have continued to grow and be very strong feeders for the nation. We have a couple of decades of a, a program called Scholarship for Service, which is uh, federally funded scholarships for students who have a, a full ride at the University of Idaho. They have stipends to pay for their expenses, and they make a pretty decent living as students. They then, in, in exchange for that scholarship, agree to serve in a federal agency for the same number of years that they were funded. And that's been a very successful program at both U of I and ISU. We also have, we're home to the Idaho National Laboratory. And INL is a, a key player in national strategy for defending critical infrastructure. They are focused on, on energy and critical infrastructure and the nuclear industry in particular. 
But from the very beginning, they've been very strongly focused on uh, cybersecurity issues, issues in in that energy infrastructure uh, that involve computers. So they've been leading uh, the research for quite some time, and they depend on their local university partners to provide qualified uh, workforce. Uh, so what's happened recently now is in the last year, uh, the governor has put forward a plan to sponsor growing education across the state. And so currently I'm serving as the uh, general project manager for what's called the Idaho Cybersecurity Education Initiative. And that's funding from the state to provide for uh, improved education facilities, capabilities, our laboratories and our faculty across all of the public institutions of higher education. So all of our four community colleges, Lewis and Clark State College, the University of Idaho, Idaho State University, and Boise State University to work together to build better capabilities of what we call a cyber range, a shared infrastructure of laboratories and classrooms and curriculum development so that we can improve our cybersecurity offerings and meet the needs of both the region and the national uh, workforce needs, which are huge, and provide great jobs for Idaho students or for anyone else who wants to come to Idaho and get one of the best cybersecurity educations in the country. Well, and this is an area uh, for job growth that's not just growing, but like growing, right? I mean, this oh, is it's, a big deal. It's, it's, a, it's almost crisis level. Um, it's one of the fastest areas of job growth uh, across any industry. There are a lot of different numbers out there that uh, people have quoted and used. There's one in particular from a group called Cybersecurity Ventures uh, that tracks job growth. They're now projecting uh, three and a half million jobs in cybersecurity fields over the next couple of years. And it's been growing, you know, triple digit percentages uh, every year for several years. Uh, Depending on which source you look at, there's tens of thousands of jobs in federal agencies, but there's jobs that run across all levels of government. We've got state cybersecurity jobs, municipalities, cities, counties. From I've I've spoken to sheriff's departments. I've spoken to private infrastructure operators. There are hospitals and lawyers' offices. There are any number of small businesses that have small to medium businesses that have a need for security experts to help them maintain their information infrastructure and to reduce their risk and to fend off these wily hackers that are, that are all over the place. We're all connected to the same big internet and essentially everyone's a potential target. So for like that level of job where you're coming in as, as the IT expert for, for cybersecurity side of things, is that what you'd get just getting um, like a standard cybersecurity degree? Or do you need like the higher level PhDs for that? It, well, it depends on uh, the the type of the work that you're going to do. There's there's no question that there are jobs available for uh, students who pursue a two year degree, an associates or an applied associates degree that focuses on specific technologies and trains them on uh, the things they need to do to be effective in the job day one at a at an entry level position. And these are these are good paying entry level positions that are you know a little bit better than your uh, typical help desk or IT sysadmin uh, because the demand is so high. Certainly, the, the University of Idaho has put forward a, a brand new uh, bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. We have a focus now in a four-year degree plan specifically in cybersecurity. But there is a lot of a lot of value in in going after a master's degree because there's so much to learn. There's so much to to have under your belt, and there are a lot of jobs that will pay that much better and be that much easier to gain with a master's degree. I've talked to a lot of people who says we don't need 
more PhDs, but from my perspective, there are classes that need to be taught. There is research that needs to be done at the national laboratories, Idaho National Laboratory, Pacific Northwest, uh, and any place else across the country where a PhD in cybersecurity is not only attainable, but but there are plenty of jobs for, for that level of degree as well. So let's say I do want to dive in and go all the way in. What kind of positions are there going to be for the master's level's PhD? Are you actually tracking these guys back to the source and actually trying to catch them? What kind of job am I going to have? Right. So in it, cybersecurity field is pretty broad. And the focus that we've had at the University of Idaho is has primarily been in computer science, in secure code development, in being able to maintain and develop large-scale systems uh, that are kept secure. So we've got database administrators, system administrators, analysts, people who monitor logs and do incident response. And we have people who, this is one of the coolest, I think, titles in the cybersecurity field, um, which are called a penetration tester, someone who can test the security uh, features and functions of a particular system and then write a report about where the vulnerabilities are. So they are professional good guys who get paid to hack. They break into systems and then write reports about how they did it. Uh, there are incident responders, there are forensic analysts, and these are all heavily uh, computer-oriented folks. But you also have business analysts, you have uh, legal support, you have people who support human resources or uh, research and development from a perspective of policy compliance, uh, reporting. It's really a very broad topic, and it's something that should be a at least an awareness level, a skill set that any graduate from any of our uh, schools should have some exposure to. Well, and I'm guessing also, I mean, obviously they can go into research as well. You know, for example, some of your research, you have worked on honeypots. And can you explain what a honeypot is? Yes. A honeypot is a, an intentionally vulnerable system that has lots of different instrumentation and logging enabled in the background. So we put out a system on the internet and wait for someone to scan it and try to hack it. And then we record everything that they do, uh, how they did what they did, what kind of tactics and tools they use. And we gain uh, what we call threat intelligence from that. We learn about hacker techniques and what they're doing, um, how they're exchanging information on the, what we call the dark web, the, the sort of the hidden, not searchable on Google kind of uh, parts of the internet. And uh, hackers are pretty good at sharing information with each other. So when new threats are made available, they, they quickly adopt those, those exploit techniques. And honeypots are one of the, the easiest ways to detect something new uh, that's hitting the Internet that we can start to warn people about. So then your honeypots that you've kind of been working on, some of them are meant to stop hackers from being able to break into power grids, correct? Yeah, if we can learn from it. So the, one of the one of the downsides is that I, I I want to put out a system that looks like the power grid and let people try to break into it. We have to pull the plug at some point. We have to stop them from spreading to our neighbors or using my honeypot as a as a launching pad or another way to get into other systems. But yeah, traditionally, honeypots are basic Windows systems. Are they can be as small as a single file or a small set of systems that look like traditional IT systems. But what, what I've proposed in the research is how do we develop a system that looks and acts like one of these big physical infrastructure sites, like 
an advanced metering infrastructure as part of a smart grid or as a hydroelectric dam or what I think is really interesting and I haven't been able to deploy fully, but could I mimic parts of or an entire nuclear power plant and make it look like a new nuclear power plant on the internet and, and trick somebody into trying to scan it and break into it? And so the, the systems become much more complex. It gets much trickier to try to hide from the hackers and not be detected as a honeypot because there are ways to do that. And they say, oh, this is a research system and I'm going to move on. You know, if they scan a system that looks like a nuclear power plant, but it's clearly part of the University of Idaho's computer science department, you know, that's, that's a pretty good indicator that it's not a real power plant and they're not interested in um, and poking around any further, so they move well, on. I would give up the goods when they don't actually get anything out of it. Exactly. So part of the research is how do we make it more resistant to detection and more realistic looking, and can it behave like a real physical system and not not be quirky like a computer and jump around in ways that, you know, you can't have a temperature just jump from negative 10 to 500 degrees without some smooth transition. So I need algorithms and mimic uh, systems that I can model that, that will behave like real physical systems, but all be virtual and all computerized. And that's, that's part of the research. How can we design a better system so that the nuclear power plants that are out there can, can use one of these as a sort of uh, canary in the mine, as a, as a way to detect when they might be uh, being targeted or actively exploited, and uh, then react to that more quickly with better intelligence? Well, so most of our listeners probably are not experts in cybersecurity, but probably own a computer or cell phone or, you know, a, a toaster that right. goes on the internet or something like that. Right. What are some tips to making sure that we're protected? Yeah, this is I, this is a good question. I get this a lot. And um, a lot of people own a lot more computers than they realize because they don't always count the toasters and the things that are, you know, even their phone in their pocket is a pretty sophisticated machine uh, that has some security needs. So I think the most important thing that people are probably aware of is that you need good passwords. You need uh, strong passwords that are easy enough to remember. You need to change them periodically. It all depends on the different system. I don't know how often you can reset a password on a toaster, but that's important. But to set a strong password on all of your accounts and have them different between the different accounts. If somebody, if you use the same password for your Facebook webpage as your work login VPN, chances are one is going to be compromised and take over the other. And so they need to be different. So a password manager program is something good for people to look into. And there's plenty of them out there that, that do a great job. I think the second most important thing is to install the patches. As you get updates on your phone or on your computer, uh, it's important to focus on the security patches and uh, download them regularly and reboot. Often we see attacks on the internet taking advantage of things that have patches available for them, but users have not uh, taken advantage of those. And so they are still vulnerable, even though the well, vendors I mean, How updated. often is my computer pinged? Oh, that's well. So from, from my honeypot research, I've found that any new computer that connects to the internet, having never run any kind of service before, you're discovered within an hour. Usually about 30 minutes, people start to connect to you with that tool that we call ping. If you're a, a high value target, like the honeypots that I've put up for infrastructure, within a day or two, we start getting connection attempts, real scans, trying to log into the system people trying to log in every every few minutes with different passwords and just to see what happens. So yeah, it's it's continuous. All right, well, I'm going to go home and change my passwords now. That's a good um, idea. 
All right. Uh, was there anything else, Michael? I know I kind of got off track there for a second. No, that, that was a good question. I think if there's one other thing that people can do, and this isn't always easy or possible, but it, it, it is really effective, uh, especially with the Windows computer, basic Windows computer. Uh, there's a way to run with extra privileges so that you can install software, and there's a way to run without those privileges. So we, we call those administrative users and regular users. It's really important for people to try to work under a regular user, non-administrative account 99% of the time. You should know when you're going to install something new, and you can type in an extra password to get that software installed. The problem is if you're running as an administrator all the time and you click on some bad link, you're, you're hacked instantly. Uh, whereas if you click on that link and you don't have permission, you'll get a pop-up that says, hey, are you sure you want to install backdoor XYZ1234? And you say, <laughs> no, I don't want to install that. And you have a chance to block it. So that can be hugely effective, but it's also a bit of an inconvenience for people. And then there's the traditional, you know, you need antivirus and you need firewalls and you need those extra things. And there are free versions and there are pay forward versions and anything is better than nothing. Windows Defender that comes standard with the operating system is a, is a great choice and, and that's free to everyone. All right. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you taking the time today. Absolutely. Hope it helps and uh, stay safe out there. If you found the intricacies of Michael's cybersecurity work interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. Not to be stymied by COVID-19, the Vandal Marching Band packed away their woodwinds and brass instruments, which can spread aerosols, and embraced percussion. The entire band learned how to drum, an instrument that allows all members to participate while staying masked. Glacier moss balls, which are nicknamed glacier mice, are globs of dirt and moss found on glaciers. Glaciologist Tim Bartholomus and wildlife scientist Sophie Gilbert found the mice move roughly 2.5 centimeters a day in a herd-like fashion. But their movement doesn't coincide with prevailing winds, downslope, or sun angle. Researchers partnered with the city of Moscow to improve wastewater testing for the virus that causes COVID-19 and develop an early warning system for detecting increases of cases in the community. They also used this technique to look for pockets of COVID-19 cases on the University of Idaho Moscow campus. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. We hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, if you'd like more details about Michael's work. While you're there, you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And we'd really love it if you'd rate and review us, too. We hope you'll let any friends and family interested in science and research know about the podcast. Help us tell our story. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.